Welcome. I am very excited to have Oswaldo Zavala back on for a second time to talk about his book, La Guerra en las Palabras. This book is an intellectual history of the narco, quote unquote, from 1975 to 2020. Oswaldo is a professor of Latin American literature and he teaches at New York University and the City University of New York, the College of Staten Island. And I absolutely love speaking to Oswaldo. I find myself challenged in the way that I think and I find my framings around things to shift after listening and engaging with Oswaldo's work. So please enjoy. It's such an honor to have you back with us today. Likewise, it's such an honor to be here, Todd. And um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Border Chronicle and, and the work you and Melissa do. And so I'm very, very happy and it's a pleasure to be here. We do appreciate that a lot. Um, and uh, we are so excited to um, hear that you have another book out, La Guerra en las Palabras, uh, War Put Into Words. Is that a good translation of that into English? Well, it, it's an uncomfortable translation. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how to translate it. Uh, I think the one that, that maybe appeals better to, to the sense I'm using the, the sentence is War Within Words. So the idea is that uh. war first appears in language as an idea, as a policy, and then slowly graduates into, um, you know, material effects of uh, uh, violence and, and governmentalities that um, that end up, you know, affecting society at large, right? So, but the idea is to think of the dimension of language and the, and the question of language as the origin for a lot of the uh, violent imagination that it's uh, encircling and inframing the anti-drug policy in, in the U.S. and in Mexico. Yeah, so that that brings me to um, what you describe as in the book as the narco narrativa, right? The the narco narrative, um, that sort of war within the words. Uh, yeah, I like that translation a lot better than what I what than what I said. Um, and I wonder if you can kind of describe like what you're thinking with these narratives and this sure. narrative. Right. So, well, I think a, a first claim that I wanted to make in my book was that um, the war on drugs as a discourse is something very different from drug trafficking as a phenomenon. You know, something that, you know, touches on the lives of many people in Latin America, uh, producers and people who move drugs across the border and, of course, ultimately consumers. So, so that phenomenon, the, the material aspect of that phenomenon is one thing. And the war on drugs as a discourse is something very different. And, um, and what I set out to do is to trace the history of the, the way we think about the drug trade, the way we talk about it, and, and the way um, a certain official discourse uh, from way back to the 1970s started uh, implanting in us the idea that we needed to uh, engage in such a thing as a war on drugs. So there's two moments that I think um, inspired uh, a lot of uh, the critique that I'm looking after. One uh, is when in 1975, uh, a special um, cabinet envoy uh, from the Ford administration, if I'm not mistaken, um, 
came to Mexico City in a secret meeting with uh, then uh, Attorney General of Mexico, General uh, Paullada. And, and they met uh, to talk about the new binational military effort to eradicate uh, marijuana and, and poppy in the Golden Triangle. And, and in, it is in this secret meeting that took place in November of 1975 that Mexico agreed to use Paracuat, the, the very uh, toxic chemical uh, herbicide that is being used ever since, uh, although you know it pauses in at different moments in history uh, to eradicate uh, crops in, in, in the so-called Golden Triangle, right? That area between Chihuahua State, Durango, and Sinaloa uh, in the mountain area. And um, and what I was really interesting to to understanding is how you know these men together you know uh, in 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 a close meeting decided on the faith of you know a lot of people uh, thousands of people who lived in the mountains area where have they have all kinds of exposure and vulnerability and that ended up as a result um, um, leaving in max massive exile uh, onto the cities you know cities like Culiacán Chihuahua City. And, and others, uh, because you know they basically made their uh, place a living hell, right? And so I was really interested in understanding how this imagination of the war on drugs that ended up affecting a lot of people at first appear as a as a narrative, as, as something that these men were committed to uh, to doing um, in my country. Um, and then if you move forward, uh, there's a second moment that I thought was also extraordinary. It's it's a moment when President Ronald Reagan in 19, April of 1986, signs this secret directive to designate uh, drug cartels as the new national security threat. Uh, and this is a second stage in this discourse that elevates uh, this uh, perceived menace, you know, worldwide menace of drug cartels as, you know, the new public enemy that had to be fought by, by the U.S., uh, in, of course, in coordination with countries like Mexico and Colombia. Now, what is very interesting at, uh, about this moment is that what we call cartels right now, you know, was ha had very little meaning in 1986, even to the traffickers themselves, right, such as, for example, Rafael Caro Quintero, who was released in 2013 after uh, a couple decades of being in prison, blamed uh, on the killing of um, DEA agent Enrique Camarena in 1985 in Guadalajara. Uh, and then uh, released in 2013 and then reapprehended not long ago, um, uh, again, during the, the new government of Lopez Obrador. And what is really interesting is that him and, and other, other traffickers, including uh, famous drug lord Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, both claim that uh, the idea of cartel is something that they came to know in prison. Right when they were already um, in uh, convicted drug lords, uh, sentenced for decades uh, uh, for prison in life. Right, actually, uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo um, still is in prison. Um, I think he was finally moved to a, a lesser uh, institution because he has all kinds of health problems. But but both of them said in different interviews that the first time they heard the word cartel, you know, was, was when they were in prison already, and and they never really understood what was all that about. Right. So what I was really interested in, in, in then testing out is how can is it that this I, language I, created... I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, you're probably about to answer it, but could I ask, um, if that term wasn't used, what what was it that they... What the, that they used? Well, I mean... Yeah, but, or that they thought they were. Maybe it, was, maybe sure. it wasn't a particular term even. Right. So this, this is really interesting, right? Because, you know, the DA calls them the Guadalajara cartel. 
Um, and we know them now as the members of the Guadalajara cartel. But back then, uh, one word that they kept using and circulating is the word federación, right? Uh, some sort of federation, right? Of, of, you know, small group of traffickers that were not coordinated by a major boss of bosses, but most likely, and this is something they kept saying by uh, the head of the federal police, then uh, Guillermo Gonzalez Calderón, who supposedly, according to uh, Felix Gallardo, is the one who assigned uh, the different areas for trafficking in the country, right? The, the famous map of, of drug trafficking, you know, from Tijuana all the way to the Gulf Cartel, right? In, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, what is really interesting then is how language, right? Constructed this reality for us uh, very extemporaneously, very post factum, right? Something that never really happened at the time. And yet we perceive and re-narrativize the entire thing, uh, you know, in, 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 in a sort of a regression, right? And, and, and retroactively thinking of cartels where they were none, right? Um, now, um, this, of course, didn't happen just because the DEA started using the word, as I said, but because President Reagan in 1986 really brought disorganizations to the center of the national security agenda, right? And so when I realized this, that, you know, that the national security agenda in the U.S. was creating this new reality, you know, naming drug cartels and, and pushing for them to be at the center of a national security threat, replacing communism, right? Since, you know, communism is about to exit uh, the world stage, right? It's a couple of years prior to the collapse of uh, the Berlin Wall. And a few years later, you know, the Soviet Union altogether would be dismantled, right? So, so the narrative of, you know, communism being the threat is no longer really active or is about to end. Um, and so when I noticed this, then I, then I really uh, was curious to see how is it that this language that was creating this reality before it really becomes a thing was first enunciated. And so my book does that, right? My book is a, it's an attempt to look at the, these words, you know, the narrative of drug trafficking and how it changes uh, from uh, different era to era and, and how it is very discontinuous, paradoxical, uh, absurd, ridiculous, you know, filled with fantasy and, and, and contradiction. And, and when you look at it, it's, it, you know, if it weren't because, you know, we're talking about very serious, violent things, uh, it, it's almost a, a laughable matter, right? Uh, I'll give you one quick example. For example, you know, in, in 1980, um, I believe it's 82, um, the DEA started investigating uh, Felix Gallardo, the supposedly, allegedly the head of the Guadalajara cartel. Once again, the word didn't really, uh, was not really in use by the traffickers, but that's what they call them. And they called the operation Operación Padrino, right? Uh, uh, operation Godfather, right? And of course, they did so because the famous Four Coppola movies were out and the, the idea of Godfather fill the imagination of the DA because that's what really they knew about organized crime, right? So the organized crime experience the DA and the FBI had closer to, to their own uh, agenda was the Italian-American mafias in the Northeast, right? In 19, uh, I believe it's 92 when, you know, they start talking about, you know, boss of bosses and uh, mafia lords, right? But back in the 80s, Godfather, right, uh, was the word, the keyword that m most people understood and knew because of the Mario Puzo novel and, and, the, and the Coppola movies. Now, Puzo himself has said many times that, you know, the idea of a Godfather was entirely his invention, that there was never a Godfather, that he knew no one to be called Godfather. And it's just something he liked, the word he liked, and that his entire uh, fiction world, well, comes really from his mind, not from any empirical experience, right? He was not a reporter doing any kind of field work. 
Um, and so what is really interesting is that the DEA takes this word out of a fiction novel, applies it arbitrarily to this Mexican trafficker, and he suddenly becomes, you know, the godfather, right? And, and now up until today, people still call him the Mexican godfather. Now, fast forward uh, a few decades in time, and then uh, a couple years ago, you know, when you may remember when they uh, arrested former defense secretary uh, of the Peña Nieto government, General uh, Salvador Cienfuegos uh, in the U.S., they also named um, the investigation uh, Operation Padrino, Operation Godfather. So he, again, the word Godfather resurfaced. And the DA claims that a, a second level trafficker identified uh, General Cienfuegos as his Godfather. Right? And, and of course, if you read the, the DEA investigation, and I did because the President Obrador made it public um, in Mexico uh, when, after he was exonerated from all charges, you see that it's just filled with this wild fantasies, inaccuracies, this, this very, very uh, dishonest uh, investigation. Not, not that, you know, that, that the general is probably free of charge because I, I, if we know the general probably is guilty of, of different crimes, but in this particular case, the DA was just doing a very sloppy work based on this, you know, um, fictitious character, right? And so what is really interesting is then how language frames our imagination and just makes us all fall into this hegemonic consensus, right? The DA says so, so it must be true, right? That the defense minister is the godfather and he meets secretly with low-level traffickers somewhere in a dark alley in, in the state of Nayarit, right? And, and that type of imagination is, I think it's very important to dismantle, to talk about, and to go to those roots, right? And, and that's what I try to do, right? So I, I try to do a genealogical history of this language, you know, going back to the 1940s. Uh, when the national security agenda was first enunciated in the U.S. and how it affected Mexico. And I move forward in time all the way to the Lopez Obrador regime. Yeah, that's uh, um, <laughs> quite, a, quite a time period <laughs> for one. Um, but also like um, thinking about all what you're saying and, and also thinking about the border, right? And how really entrenched those sort of narco narratives are here um i have an example and and i hope maybe with this example i could tease out a question um i was in nogales in in uh, sonora in mexico uh recently and i um i hopped out of the car right along the border wall on the mexican side just to take a picture and i looked around um as i was doing it there was a kid who popped up and he just he just said don't take any don't take any pictures there and I went okay and I got back in I didn't take a picture I got back in in the vehicle and the person driving was like oh that's a cartel and I thought you know so a couple things like simultaneously I thought I'm like okay cartel right there's that word right and uh is is this kid like El Chapo, like <laughs> 16 or something? <laughs> like, is it like the Sinaloa cartel or, you know, like all these big narratives like you're talking about that come Absolutely. from all these all these places on one hand. On the other, I was, I'm very skeptical of that word, right? So I, 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 sure. thought, I thought about your work, for one, and I thought about um, how those narratives, like when you're in the border, that becomes a justification for building more of the walls, right? Like when you're thinking about it, the kid was there, right? The kid was telling me not Absolutely. to take a picture. So there's a reality there on one hand, 
but it's like there's a narrative on the other. So I'm wondering how you like is a cartel that will term invented by these narratives and then then what is what is it really? What are we talking about when we're talking about sure. it? Well, you know, we, we tend to think of an hegemonic discourse sometimes as something that distorts our, our vision of reality, right? Uh, as something that, you know, either exaggerates or, 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 or presents some sort of falsehood on what we are supposed to perceive. But in reality, when a, when a discourse becomes hegemonic, what really happens is that it becomes your mediation with reality, right? It becomes almost your spontaneous contact with reality, not a distortion of it. You don't perceive it as something that it's meddling in your field of vision, but rather you be, you, you really conflate a discourse with your own perception of reality. And, and so in Mexico, unfortunately, as in the U.S., when we use the word cartel and when we talk about organized crime and the transnational reach of, of these organizations, uh, people do believe because they've been told so by f- so many different sources and fronts at the same time repeatedly across decades. They do believe that these organizations are very powerful. They have, you know, thousands of people working uh, with the reach uh, of pen- and penetration, you know, to corrupt the, the high levels of Mexican government, to reach over, you know, 120 countries in the planet and so on and so forth. Right? And so when that happens... Um, among people who are persuaded by, by this discourse are traffickers themselves, right? People involved in organized crime. They also themselves, and especially in a very special way, they, they engage with that discourse because there's a certain degree of desire to, to not only uh, corroborate what is being told, but also to, to participate in it and to, be, and to feel part of it. Uh, and this is a difficulty, for example, that a lot of journalists uh, covering this, this topics or people in academia doing uh, cultural fieldwork, ethnography, cultural anthropology, etc., all these fields that need to be out there um, trying to test this reality face, right? Because we, they, they come with a preset uh, of ideas and understandings that out there, you know, there are people from the cartel, you know, people informing and, and children and women and, and, and older people are all involved somehow with the network. Now, the traffickers themselves uh, believe that, you know, and, and, and would love to be part of something greater than what they are, right? So so I don't doubt for a minute that traffickers exist and that are out there, and, and some of them perhaps are uh, would rather that their picture not be taken. Um, and, and I'm sure, you know, they, they are people of, of, of worry, you know, people that we that we need to think about as a problem for governance and for, just for the viability of our communities. But from from there to leap, you not know, to the idea that these organizations are so powerful that they can, you know, uh, overtake uh, the FBI or you know move mon- money hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and and basically um, uh, surpass the the security uh, holds of the global financial network. Um, well, it's uh, it, there's a big long range to to make that distance, right? And so one kid becomes the metaphor. Of, of a word, right? One kid becomes uh, a standing figure, right? For for a discourse that has that, that cannot really be verified otherwise, and and this is really the problem, right? It could be that kid, or it could be somebody else claiming to be the chief of the sicarios of the you know Guadalajara cartel or the or the Jalisco New Generation cartel. They can claim you know that they met with the president and they gave them in you know, a hundred million dollars in cash, but all that reality 
you know, it's really based out on, on, on verifiable uh, data, right? And, and so the problem is that most journalists, most people in academia trying to understand uh, organized crime and its relationship with, um, with state power, et cetera, um, end up accepting without any evidence uh, what it's been told by the official discourse itself. And what you're saying is very important, right? Ultimately, this discourse benefits the very same policies Right, that that end up, you know, affecting us all, um, especially, you know, on uh, those on the receiving end of the violent anti-drug surveillance techniques. Right, uh, you know, people usually poor people in Mexico, uh, racialized communities um, that end uh, end up, you know, having over policing of their neighborhoods and uh, and who end up, you know, killed uh, by by these policies. I'm thinking, for example, the the horrible case of, of those kids in uh, in Villas de Salvarca in, back in 2010. You know, uh, kids from middle school and high school celebrating the birthday of one of them in a working class neighborhood uh, in, in the southern part of Ciudad Juarez, uh, who suddenly were raided uh, by what per was perceived to be some sort of a operation. And they ended up uh, being killed uh, uh, mercilessly uh, by, by this armed commando without any identification tags or anything. And of course, they were uh, the, the crime was blamed on drug cartels. And a lot of people believe to this day that that's what happened, right? That drug cartels uh, were fighting each other and that mistakenly they went into the wrong house. Um, but, you know, reporting uh, like yours, you know, when, when you're thinking of how much money we're spending on policing and uh, the border and how much money we're spending on, on national security, well, it tells you that in reality, it's not a mistake in the greater sense of of the national security agenda, right? These policies end up killing people, right? And the, these ideas, this this perceived notion that the border is really taken by drug cartels, and ends up, you know, uh, with somebody pulling the trigger, right? Unfortunately. So, so going back to the question, people believe in this in this language in this in this narrative because they have already accepted it as the base uh, line of their perception of reality. Yeah, and. I mean, you, you probably see it all the time, like how hard it is sometimes to talk about it. There's so many seemingly preconceived ideas. So I'm wondering about that. But I'm also wondering um, about, like, as I think of the, how these narratives play out and um, thinking about, like, the state, for example. Well, then, if you pose that the organized crime or the quote-unquote cartel is quote-unquote bad then the state is good right and then so the state becomes the solution right and then also does do you feel like those strong narratives those entrenched narratives then obscure like other things that are actually really happening like for example absolutely yeah like you make this great point about you know the the mechanisms of capitalism and how they're working in mexico for example or even you know you're looking at different things that seem not even to be on the radar of, of media at all, like the free trade agreements and uh, or exploitation of resources. And and um, so I'm wondering if you can uh, talk about how those narratives play, like, yeah, all of that. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, in order for, for us to really um, 
pose some sort of a challenge to this narrative, we need to, to think outside of it, right? And we need to see first how it's in frame, how it's enunciated in the first place, and how it's, you know, uh, just written with all kinds of fantasies and, and absurdities, right? The idea of a cartel, as I mentioned, it was pure fiction. The idea that the cartels move billions of dollars is uh, also disproven over and over again. And yet, you know, a lot of this information still circulates because it gets repeated by uh, journalism, by academia, um, even though there's many, many, uh, a lot of data out there that, that disproves the idea that the cartel is really an empire, a global empire of, of you know, immense wealth and, and, and military reach almost, right? Uh, that on one side. But, but then going after that, that narrative, when you need to look at the different aspects that surround uh, anti-drug policy in Mexico, for example, and in particular in the first decade of, of the 21st century, we had two things happen uh, uh, simultaneously, right? On, on the one hand, we had um, the Bush government and then the Obama government uh, very aggressively supporting and embracing uh, President Calderón's militarization uh, for uh, the new war on drugs and the deployment of you know thousands of soldiers and federal agents all, all across the country. Uh, and there was a continuity between the Bush administration to the Obama administration that that you know very clearly uh, made a hero out of Calderon and, and, and the gruesome killings did not really matter because in their view, um, he was, you know, bringing the war to the cartels, right? Um, now, at the same time, uh, the State Department in the Obama administration in particular was very aggressively pushing for energy reform in Mexico. And what is very interesting is that by the time we reach to a final consensus in 2013, you know, and, and the vote comes down in the Mexican Congress to open up to foreign investment different aspects of, you know, energy, oil, gas, etc. Um, Mexico is already in flames, right? You have a country that, um, that went from, you know, a, a murder rate of eight or nine killings per 100,000 uh, um, inhabitants to some places to uh, over 200 and 20 killings per 100,000 uh, uh, inhabitants, right? So we went from, for example, in Ciudad Juarez, my town, from 340 killings in 2007 to over 3,000 killings by 2010, right? So what is very contradictory is in this uh, violent um, uh, arena is that uh, in those places where the militarization was deployed, in many of them, extractive projects were happening at the same time, right? And this is something that, that we... Most, uh, most of the time do not uh, think of um, uh, with the same lens, right? So you take, for example, the state of uh, Tamaulipas that were the famous Zetas, the Zetas cartel, this ex-military group was terrorizing uh, and, and depopulating entire communities uh, at, the exact, at the exact same uh, area where uh, a massive uh, infrastructure project was undergoing to extract natural gas, shale gas right, out of Tamaulipas and crossing all Mexico all the way to California. Um, and this is one of the major uh, infrastructure uh, developments uh, that continue over in the Peña Nieto government. So it makes, it, it makes you wonder how is it possible, right, that in the most violent cartel in Mexican history, according to, to some reports, um, basically reigning uh, over the state of Tamaulipas, allows 
somehow for the extractive industry to keep on going, right? And the same situation you see in Guerrero, you know, uh, you have the Ayotzinapa uh, disappearance of students and we all thinking of, you know, uh, corruption and, and maybe some local drug gangs doing this, but you have one of the most important mining uh, projects uh, from uh, Canadian companies and others um, undergoing in that state. Um, and, and you can keep on moving you know, throughout the country in, in that direction and finding that uh, places of extraction are also the places of immense violence and militarization and, and this idea of drug trafficking taking hold. Nowadays, for example, in the, in the state of Sonora, where uh, there's a large, uh, unproven, but, but uh, supposedly there, uh, reserve of lithium, uh, suddenly cartels are also declaring that as a, as a war zone, right? And they're fighting for turf in small towns that most people haven't even heard of, like the, you know, the town of Caborca in, in Sonora. So it makes you wonder, why is it that the militarization coincides usually with these places of, of extraction and somehow these transnational companies extracting gas, minerals, lithium, or um, you know, uh, oil um, make it through uh, this uh, cartel violence, right? So, so there's something there to, to be considered. Some, some academics and journalists have um, initiated this discussion. Uh, people I respect, like, you know, my friend Guadalupe Correa, who's written a very important book about the Tamaulipas case called uh, Los Zetas Inc., um, published by the University of Texas Press, uh, also translated in Spanish, and, and other journalists like my friend Federico Mastroiovanni, you know, who, who has uh, done this uh, reporting and, and trying to understand this. At the same time, of course, at the Mexican federal government, you have that those very people who put in place a lot of the um, aggressive uh, energy policies uh, during the drug war ended up in the revolving door um, of you know of life after being in the cabinet and becoming members of boards you know of in energy companies in the U.S. or elsewhere, right? Um, there's many cases. Uh, my friend Arturo Rodriguez, another journalist out of Proceso Magazine, has tracked uh, I think over 120 cases of you know cabinet level appointees from different administrations that end up you know with you know cushy jobs uh, in in important transnational energy companies. So you cannot really understand how is it that if Mexico is supposed to be a failed country, you know, overtaken by drug lords and drug cartels, it's at the same time, you know, a country open for business, for extraction, you know, where things go smoothly and where, you know, you can lay out a pipeline, you know, a thousand kilometers across the country without cartels messing with the project, right? Good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think that's a some wor really worthy terrain to look into journal i mean i speak from a, as a perspective of a journalist like to look at journalistically um yeah and so i have uh one last question i guess as, as we wind down here um and this has to do uh um andres manuel lopez obrador the president of mexico it's true that he declared the an end to the to the drug war uh it was a 2019. Um, and so you have sort of that declaration. Um, but yet, you know, the kind of facets of the same dynamics of, of violence, um, you see still present. So I'm, I'm like wondering what you think about Lopez Obrador's declaration to, um, you make, um, these really like, great points in the book, especially around 
you know, the, the narrative creating an alternative reality, right? Um, that, that point. And also like what, like for something that's so entrenched and so entrenched in the way of thinking, the trench of the narratives, entrenched in the fiction, entrenched in the TV dramas, um, you make this great point about like to stop this war and and to view it as a war is is to like this sort of language these words that are using there are giving it rationale are um what needs to be needs to be changed at least as a first step um and i don't know if you could speak more to that sure well this is a complicated issue right uh so president lopez obrador came to office with, uh, with the promise of ending anti-drug militarization, of, of pacifying the country, and to stop state violence, basically. He had a very, very strong critique of the armed forces and the way they, uh, well, they were engaging in, in crimes against humanity and, and over-militarizing areas where uh, the poor uh, would, would suffer most. Uh, in different parts of the country, and of course, I agree with that um, with that agenda, and I thought it was right on target. Uh, so uh, when he came to office, he he declared that he uh, would end uh, the Kimping strategy, the infamous Kimping strategy, the DEA uh, logic of attacking heads of uh, organizations, arguing that in doing so, the, the organization itself would crumble. Right. And of course, we know now, after decades of experience with with this criminal policies, that, of course, that doesn't do much in reality. Uh, it just keeps on uh, forever enlarging or, or fragmenting different groups and 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 making these groups just simply um, even more difficult to locate. Now, uh, that also it's uh, it's counterproducing because, you know, we know for a fact that m most of these alleged heads of cartels really are not so, right? And this is what El Chapo Guzman said in trial, right? He said, look, you know, I, I just, I was ahead of some traffickers, but once I came down, you know, nothing really happened. You know, not, the, the organization doesn't crumble because there's no such organization, <laughs> right? You just have a dispersion of many traffickers moving drugs across the border that do not depend on him or on his people to do anything in particular, right? They, they actually, his defense argued that he was not the boss of anything. And, uh, and uh, on top of that, not much money was found in, in his supposed uh, large fortune, right? And uh, the, not, neither the Interpol or FBI or DA found, you know, secret accounts of money, you know, hidden in Switzerland or anything like that, right? Um, now, so when, when Lopez Obrador comes to power, rightly so, he questions all this uh, fantasies of, of, of the anti-drug policy, but the, the day he did so, and this is something very uh, much contradictory, and I, and I note this in my book, uh, the head of the Marines, um, uh, General Ojeda, Rafael Ojeda, comes out in the press conference uh, announcing that uh, they're going to have to begin a new strategy on against the, the cartel of the huachicolero, which is the word we use in Mexico to name uh, fuel theft. Right. Uh, these organizations that uh, poke holes in pipelines to extract illegally uh, gasoline or oil, you know, all across the country. Um, um, according to some reports, there are about 10,000 of these sites, illegal sites or, you know, pipeline perforations. So uh, what is extraordinary is that, you know, here we have the Mexican president saying we're not going to attack 
drug lords anymore. But then his the head of his, of the Marines, the Mexican Marines, is saying we're we're starting a new war <laughs> against uh, the Huachicoleros because they have also created their cartel. Is the new cartel of Santa Rosa de Lima? They already had a name. There was a drug uh, a Huachicolero lord. There were now folk songs, corridos written about them. There was a popular telenovela that ran in in a major TV network. And so uh, all the basically all the culture around the drug trafficking was suddenly transferred um, to this fight against huachicoleros. And, and it didn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Right. Uh, then we, a couple years later, under tr uh, pressure by President Trump, um, President Lopez Obrador engages in this radical anti-immigrant policy. Right. And, and now, you know, the, the idea of the bad hombre crossing the border translates also into domestic policy. And so he starts militarizing the southern border, the, the northern border. Um, the military takes over custom checkpoints. Uh, even now they control the, the new international airport. So there is an entire mentality, an entire rationale of our country under national security threats constantly. Uh, and it doesn't have to be in the name of drug trafficking anymore, right? It can just be any common enemy that the government points at. Right. And it could be undocumented migration. It could be, you know, fuel theft. It could be just simply people moving across the country existing that can be perceived as a national security threat. And so my my point to this is that in order to really um, uh, interrupt or short circuit this violent uh, policy, we need to look at national security altogether as a paradigm. Right. Not just drug trafficking, because drug trafficking just happens to be one of the latest iterations, you know, from the 1980s playbook in the post-Cold War era. Right. But but in reality, the national security uh, age agenda is it's something that keeps, you know, colonizing our public discourse. And it, it asserts itself, you know, in, in all different areas of society. Right. It can, national security can be, you know, just bringing um, the covid vaccine to rural areas in, in Mexico. Right. So so supposedly cartels were doing that, you know, cartels were were taking the place of the state because they were now, you know, um, uh, feeding poor communities during during the pandemic. Um, and, and so this idea that, you know, somehow the country is always uh, under attack, uh, that we need the military for special purposes, just keeps coming back to us in full force. Right. And, and we are it's never going to stop unless we criticize uh, in general, you know, this national security policy, this national security paradigm, right, that begins even way back uh, before drug trafficking is even uh, talked about the way it is now, right? It begins in the 1940s, you know, when the U.S. is reorganizing the world uh, after the Second World War and, and creating, you know, institutions like uh, the National Security um, Agency, uh, the CIA, you know, reorganizing this, the the defense de, uh, department, uh, and and so uh, we've been since since day one in Mexico subalternized by this national security policy, this national security agenda and paradigm, and we never really tested it uh, and challenged it, right? And and I and I think uh, we we're never going to really get past this uh, entrapment of uh, following the U.S. into its um, uh, domestic and, 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 and international fear uh, mongering and, and war calling, you know, un unless we really think of this. And one last thing I would, I would like to say is that we keep talking, right, about the war on drugs as if really cartels had the way to fight back, you know, as if really the armed forces were 
fighting a real enemy. But what you see uh, uh, after, you know, the tallies come down, you know, the official tallies of victims and people killed during this so-called war is that the, the general average of people killed by the militarization is usually a young brown men uh, from 17 to 25 years of age uh, and uh, who were born poor and died poor, right, with very little or none education, right? And, and, and this idea that, you know, the country is under attack must be challenged, right? And we're not under a war, right? We're under a very brutal um, policy of extermination against poor people. This is really the right name of the war on drugs, right? It's a, it's a policy of extermination of poor brown people uh, that keeps doing uh, this horrible nightmare to, to the most disenfranchised in the country. And so, so in order to, to escape this, I, I think we need to, as a country, as a, a society, as a whole, but not only in Mexico, also in the U.S., to challenge together this national security paradigm as a storytelling machine, right? As you and I mentioned uh, in our first uh, podcast, right? We, we What we are facing is a powerful uh, machine that disseminates narratives and keeps creating monsters at our doorstep every single day, right? So we, we need to go at that route and, and cut it, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Osvaldo Zavala. It's very... It was great to have this conversation with you today. Um, and if people want to reach you or see your work or where can they go to find you? Well, uh, my previous book, uh, Drug Cartels Do Not Exist, has been published in English, as you know. Uh, it came out uh, last year uh, at Vanderbilt University Press. You can buy it in Amazon. Uh, La Guerra en las Palabras, it's being translated, uh, but it's not there yet. Uh, so far, you can you can find it in Spanish. You can also buy it in the U.S., not only in Mexico. It also you, it's accessible in the U.S. also as an ebook and an audiobook is coming also uh, pretty soon. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, uh, Osvaldo, un, two underscores, Zavala, and usually uh, happy to answer all questions from, from readers and, and to keep engaging in this very important topics. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.